faithful, man. Thanks for doing that. Um, it's good to have you. And like I said, my name is Luke. If I haven't met you yet, I hope to get to meet you after the service. We might need to turn this down a little bit. It's hot. Um, but hey, if you brought a Bible with you or an app, go ahead and turn to, to Esther 7. Esther 7, that's where we're going to be today. It's a fascinating passage. I love this part of the story. We've, I've, we've had fun going through this book. I, I probably have had more feedback on the book of Esther, good feedback on the book of Esther than any book that we've gone through um, as a church in our history. And I think this is the ninth, if I'm counting right. So I'm excited. We are pretty much at the very peak of the story in chapter seven. And while you're turning there, I don't know if you ever even keep up with this stuff. I certainly don't. I had to look it up. But there was a game that was pulled off the shelves of Walmart and Target about a month ago. It was a game for like toddlers up to around nine or 10-ish, just a kid game called Cut the Wire. And it was a, a game where kids would try to defuse a toy bomb and under a certain time limit before it went off, and I don't know, shot confetti, I don't know what it did, but it was just this game that when someone took a picture of it and put it on social media, people just went bananas. I mean, just bananas. Because in this day and age, there should never be a game in their view that would have anything to do with the bomb. And so retailers did what retailers do, and they took it off the shelf. They ripped it right off the shelf, what I think is hilarious is they left all the toy guns sitting on the shelf, you know, which is probably a different sermon altogether. But they've, they took it off the shelf, even though it's a part of our pop culture, diffusing bombs. It's just a piece of how we tell stories and see stories. Think of uh, the blockbuster movies that you go and see, right? This is just a piece of what we see as pop culture. There's always, in, in those dramatic movies, the timer methodically chirping down to zero, zero, colon, zero, zero, right? I mean, this is just something that we've grown up watching. I actually went and looked at the different blockbuster movies that have that key overdone moment of a timer going to zero with a bomb about to go off. We have The Hurt Locker, Die Hard with a Vengeance, The Rock, Armageddon, boy, that's a jewel in cinematic history, isn't it? Armageddon, little piece of history. That's where I took my wife on our very first date was to see Armageddon. <laughs> oh, brother. Mission Impossible, Speed. I quit counting at 50 blockbuster movies. I just quit counting. It was well over 100 for sure. We love this stuff in our movies, except we don't like it in our toys, apparently. <laughs> But in movies, we love it. And in the movies, you typically have two people in this scene, right? One cutting the wires and the other one pretty much just standing there because it's not really a key moment where you want a lot of hands on something. So you've got a person that's just kind of useless. They're maybe holding the tools or yelling a bunch. They're kind of adding to the drama. They're second-guessing everything that the wire cutter's doing. The wire cutter is the one that's sweating. You notice they're always sweating, right? Sweat everywhere. Um, they're, they're kind of panicked. They don't know what to do. They go from the red wire to the green wire to the red wire, and the timer's counting down, and then they go to the blue wire. They cut the blue wire. We wouldn't even know that was a, a wire. They cut that or the white one, and it's always zero, zero, like, one or two, but it was just in time. This is where we're at in our story today, right? Rescue and deliverance for the Jewish people, it's all counting down to zero. There is a day of pending doom where they will all be exterminated and made extinct. That's happening, right? But in our story, 
there are multiple hands diffusing this situation, not just one. There's multiple hands. We see Esther, and we've been watching Esther as a primary character, and she is single-handedly doing things. Yet God is actually cutting wires as well. He is doing things. And so as we read this story, what I want you to do, I want you to take that dilemma in your life, whatever the bomb is in your lap that you walked in here with. All of you did. All of us do. I did too. We walk in with a dilemma, and we don't know what to do with it. Wires everywhere, panic, it's attached to a timer, as always. There's doom there. We don't know what to do next. We don't know what to cut next. We're confused. We're scared. You probably brought it in here with you a couple weeks ago, too. Maybe the week before that. It could be money. It could be kids, marriage, work, health, mind, emotions, hormones, future, dreams. Who knows, right? And all of those are so complex. There's so many things you can do, and you just don't know what to do. That issue, whatever it is for you, that dilemma, I want you to take it, and I want you to hold it. Just keep it on your dashboard, because when we read this passage, I want you to see your problem, your dilemma, through the lens of this passage. I'm doing the same thing. I'm doing the same exact thing. This passage is a great help to me. Not just because it shows me who Jesus looks like clearly, but because it also helps me navigate how my heart reacts whenever I have dilemmas in front of me, bombs that need to be defused. So I want you to keep that with you. Let's look at Esther 7. We're going to walk our way through it because there's so much action going on. I'll pause every verse or two and maybe unpack what's going on. But this is the word of the Lord for us today, very helpful for us. Esther 7, verse 1. So the king and Haman went into feast with Queen Esther, and on the second day, As they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to Esther, What is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted to you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. Okay, if that sounds familiar, it's because it's the third time he said it, right? I mean, I wonder if even the drama has kind of run its course with this king. Three times he has told his queen, You ask for it, it's yours. But she keeps pushing it off. She keeps kicking the can down the street and adding these feasts. He's publicly saying this repeatedly, and it's kind of adding the pressure that he's going to need to say probably yes to whatever she asks. That's why she's doing this, right? So now we're at the point, it's after the last feast, and he's like, all right, the gig is up. You got to go ahead and tell me. I can see it on your face. You've been waiting for this moment. I've already told you. You'll have up to half of my kingdom. You just tell me what it is, and it's yours. But this is what I want you to remember. I want you to remember what's on the line for the king. There's a lot on the line for him. If he gives Esther what Esther wants, I mean, first of all, he's going to lose more than a quarter of a billion dollars. 400 tons of silver. Today, that's $250 million. Back then, when it was much more rare, it'd be considerably more. That's over a year's worth of tax revenue. It will cost this king if he says yes to Esther. Another thing I want you to remember, his reputation's gonna take a stinger, right? Because let's remember, in this moment, he's already pushed this edict out to destroy all of the Jews, to destroy the whole nation of Israel. If he rewinds that, if he kind of undoes that or cancels it out, if he does any of that, it's going to make him look like a moron, right? It's not going to make him look like he even knows what he's doing. So 
His polling numbers are super low. He needs a win. This will cost him. Here's the third thing I want you to remember, okay? And this is the big one. I want you to remember how unpredictable this guy is. We looked at this in weeks one through three, right? How unpredictable this king is. He has so much power, but he's unwieldy with it. He'll swing one way, and then he'll swing over to the next, the very next moment, right? There's actually a historian that was alive during this time and alive in this empire, and he wrote a bunch about this king, King Ahasuerus. His name was Herodotus. And one of the stories that he wrote about was whenever they went off to fight the Greeks, right? We have this king, King Ahasuerus, going off to fight the Greeks. By the way, in your story, that's between chapters 1 and 2. That's when that battle happened. And as he's going to fight the Greeks, he bumps into this guy named Pythias. Pythias, super wealthy, gave a ton of money to the king to help finance the fighting. And then he was also very hospitable, very welcoming. And so a relationship bloomed. They developed a real kindred spirit towards each other. One night, in the middle of this blooming relationship, there was an eclipse, or maybe that would have to be during the day. There was an eclipse. Now, back then, they were very mystical people, and they saw everything as a sign. And what his religion told him is that that was a sign his family was in danger. So Pythias approached King Ahasuerus and said, Listen, I've been a good friend to you. And I'll always be a good friend to you, but I'm asking one thing, that you release my oldest son from your army so he can come back and take care of our house where I feel like there's not going to be very much help for our house because of this sign I've gotten. Not only did the king not do that, he took the oldest son, he chopped him in half, spread him out, and marched his army right through the two pieces to show two things. One, nothing trumps the empire. Two, no one is close enough to king to ask something hard like this. Nobody is. He's unpredictable. He's unpredictable. This is the king that Esther is about to ask to make a bigger sacrifice than even Pythias did. Same guy. If you do any kind of historical research, that's one of about a dozen stories that talks about how ruthless and unpredictable this king is. He's one of the most ruthless kings in ancient history. This one. Let me just remind you, and I said this when we introduced his character early in the story. Don't fall for the rendition of this story where this king is a decent yet misunderstood guy. This isn't Beauty and the Beast, right? It's not happening. There's no Disney dust all over this where she floats in and tames the monster into being this generous, benevolent king. That's irresponsible storytelling. It's not accurate historically. It's not accurate biblically. He is unstable. He is unhinged. And working with him required a very patient hand, which she has, doesn't she? I mean, are you watching how she's handling him? Esther is showing that she's growing and understanding how to deal with a guy like this. Proverbs 25 says this, With patience a ruler may be persuaded. And a soft tongue will break a bone. Well, she's been patient. She's been humble. She's been meek. All the things this guy loves, especially in his women. Especially in his women. All right? So that's what's going on. Let's look at verse 3, Esther 7, 3. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it pleases the king, let my life be granted me for my wish. And my people for my request. For we have been sold, 
For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent, for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. All right. Here we see Esther working on the bomb. She's cutting wires. She's really smart. This is brilliant. She's not the naive schoolgirl that she was when we first met her, is she? She's evolving. An executive queen. She's begging for her own life, and she doesn't even mention the Jews by name. Why? Because the king doesn't care. He's not emotionally invested in that people group. He probably couldn't count on two hands how many Jews he even knows. But he is emotionally invested in her, so he makes the issue between him and her. This is brilliant. This is what, listen, this is a sales tactic that they teach in school even today. If you want to do anything from sell a steak knife to raise millions of dollars for, for research or for work overseas, the, the key to getting people to be committed in a direction is to get them to emotionally invest in it, to be emotionally pulled into it, which is exactly what she's doing. She's super smart, very brilliant, right? Did you notice that she's also purposefully using the words of the edict, the same ones that Haman chopped out on Google Drive probably just a couple months earlier. She's reading right off the script out loud. You'd find it in the third chapter, to destroy, to kill, to annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day. She's reading right off the script. Smart. She also knew that this king placed the empire above all else. She knew the story of Pythias. That only happened maybe one to two years before she came along. That was probably legend. Not even someone as close as Pythias is immune to the wrath of the king. There's a lot going on here. That's why she says, if this was anything else, I wouldn't even bother you with it. Like, if it was just slavery, <laughs> think about that. If it was just slavery, I wouldn't even bring it up. Because, I mean, come on. You've got a lot to deal with already, you know? I wouldn't even mention it. Man, she's pushing all the right buttons. And by the way, I wonder if this is the point that Haman was getting uncomfortable, hearing his own words read back to him like that. I bet he put the chicken wings down. You know what I'm saying? I bet, I bet he got real attentive real fast, thinking, wait a minute. I think those are my words. Esther 7, verse 5. Let's go a little, a little further. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, Who is he? And where is he who has dared to do this? And Esther said, A foe and enemy, this wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen, and the king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. All right. I want you to notice she doesn't even implicate the king, who, I mean, let's face it, it's his fault, right? I mean, this is all at his feet. It is Haman, but not really. It was his signet ring, and it was his thumbs up that pushed this whole edict into motion. It was really his fault. But there's not, not as much of a ring to, well, it's you, king. You're the, you're the dumb donkey. You're the one that's doing this thing. It's your fault. That doesn't have near the ring. It's easier to point to a guy who's disposable and say, that's the guy right there. That's what's happening here. And so what does he do? He leaves. He gets up and he storms off, which is mildly inappropriate and very awkward. Put yourself in that tent just for a moment. 
It got real awkward. He's mad. He just stormed out. Haman's panicked. He's begging for his life. We're not really even given a reason why he left the tent. I have a working theory. You'll have to make up your own mind, by the way, right? I think what the king did is I think the king found himself in his own personal dilemma, and he needed to start working through all the various scenarios, right? If the king was a great guy, there's really no dilemma at all. Haman's got to go. But he's not a great guy, is he? He's not. These are the facts that he has. Somebody in that tent has got to go. Things can't go back to normal, what normal was. So what's easier to replace, a queen or a prime minister? He's already replaced one queen. You can just see the wheels cranking, can't you? He's angry, he's pacing, he's thinking through these things. Here's another fact that he's probably having to mull over. He backed the edict. So if he disposes of Haman, it's going to be for a plot that he himself approved, again, making him look like a moron. And then, the probably a big glaring fact is he could lose a quarter of a billion dollars. I'm not really sure what conclusion he came to or if he even came to one, but what we do know is when he returned to the tent, it looks like the dilemma just kind of solved itself. As I like to say sometimes, the knot untied itself. Let's look at verse 8, and it tells us why. And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. And the king said, well, he even assault the queen in my presence in my own house. As the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. All right. He returns to find Haman on the same couch as Esther. Dilemma solved. Do you really think that Haman was attacking and assaulting her? He's panicked. He's begging for his life. He's probably petitioning her. He's doing the very opposite. But it does allow the king to build a different narrative. He can get rid of one of them easily. And the narrative is he did it because he's noble. And that's the just thing to do, right? I mean, he attacked the queen. Let's get rid of this guy. Makes sense. Makes him look heroic. That's what I think. I'll let you decide. One interesting note here, though, I think in this passage that's missed by a lot of people, I think it just it deserves just a, a simple treatment. You're watching a prophecy being fulfilled here, right now in this moment. At the very end of the last chapter, the very end of that, we see Haman's wife and Haman's friends say this phrase, if Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but you will surely fall before him. That's what's happening right here. I mean, look at the irony. The one person who wanted to kill a Jew for not falling down before him will be killed on the fake charge of falling down before a Jew. It's prophecy fulfilled. Okay. Verse 9. Let's look at verse 9 as we work through this. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king, said, Moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word did save the king, is standing at Haman's house, 50 cubits high. And the king said, Hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king abated. Wow, what a, what a difference a day makes. Seriously, it is hard, it's rare, to find such an abrupt reversal of fortune in the Bible. You do see it from time to time. Job, that was abrupt, right? Samson was pretty abrupt. But this, is, this has got to be close to the top of the list. 
It makes me think of Proverbs 26, where he says, whoever digs a pit will fall into it, and a stone will come back on him who starts rolling it. I mean, 24 hours earlier than this, this guy was the wealthiest, second to the king, the wealthiest and the most powerful man in the known world. And now he's got a bag over his head and they're marching him towards a long pole sticking out of the ground and they're going to hang him on it. That's what's happening. Have you ever wondered why so many others are not caught digging pits today? They're digging pits, but they're not falling into it, it feels like. Like they've got all the power and God has none. He's not even there. Whether it's an employer or a politician or a neighbor or a developer or a CEO or a celebrity or something like that. People who craft destruction and they just continually seem to get away with it. Do you ever wonder about that? It just feels like God's not there. Let me just encourage you and then we'll move on because this isn't the main part of the passage. There will be a day whether it is here or whether it is on the last day of days, there will be a day where all accounts will be settled because nothing goes unnoticed. Nothing goes unnoticed. All accounts will be settled. Everything will be settled. This is one of Job's friends speaking to Job. He says, he frustrates, meaning God, the devices of the crafty so that their hands achieve no success. He catches the wise in their own craftiness and the schemes of the wily are brought to a quick end. They meet with darkness in the daytime and grope at noonday as in the night. And that's what's happening to Haman right now. He's groping around at noonday, darkness in the daytime as a bag is thrown over his head. It's a sad end to a life, really. I mean, I know he's a jerk. He's been a jerk this whole story. But he probably wasn't always like that. It's a sad end to a life. And it's taken us seven chapters to get to this moment. But only Haman is gone, not the edict. Did you notice that? The resolution hasn't settled yet. There really is no resolution yet. I mean, still is a date on the calendar for every single Jewish person to be extinguished. But what we do have here is a great view of two sets of hands working on the same problem. God's hands and Esther's hands working simultaneously, invested in seeing the people of God rescued. We see God at work in events where Esther is not doing anything. Mordecai has no control. They're just passengers on the bus. And they don't have their hands on the wheel at all. We see that. I mean, it, it, the very fact that we even have a chapter 7 is because Esther was beautiful. But she didn't have any control over that. God made her look a certain way. She might not even be considered beautiful today. But in that day and age, with that people, she was considered gorgeous. The most beautiful woman around. She had nothing to do with that. We've got Mordecai, who just happened to be at the right place, happened to be there at the right time to hear a couple assassins talking about taking out the king. He couldn't have planned that. Just happened to be there. Mordecai was overlooked and just stuffed in a footnote. Of course, we saw a couple weeks ago that happened right on time. The king had insomnia, woke up and read that same report, and that happened right on time. Mordecai was rediscovered right on time. All of these characters were just passengers. God's the only one cutting wires. He's the one working on the dilemma. But we also have Esther working in arenas that she does have control, where she does have hands on the situation, where she's cutting wires. We have that too. She spent days fasting and considering a strategy, and a good one we've seen, right? 
She woke up on that one scary day and put on the royal robes to appear before a king who did not call her and she could have lost her life. That took some courage. She had to get up and do that. She did something. She also put a feast together and then a second feast together. She was patient. She was long-suffering. She was calculated in that whole time. She did that. And then she crafted this perfect moment, executed it perfectly in a way that would put most CEOs right under the table. High executive. Both God and Esther are diffusing the same situation at the exact same time. Esther has a plan. God has a plan. Okay. It becomes valuable for us to see that whenever we strategize and make plans with our dilemmas. Does it not? Right? Because we can strategize and we can plan, but nothing comes to fruition without God's providential agreement. Without him agreeing with our plan. Our plan is nothing unless it agrees with his providential plan. Here's, here's how it says it in Psalms. It's better explained. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. So God builds the house. Truth. But if labors don't show up, the house doesn't get built. That's true too. It's a complimentary truth. They're both true. Here's the big question for me and for you today. Are you the type of person who prays for God to move while you exert zero effort? Or are you the type of person who cannot sit still because you think God is exerting zero effort? Which one? Are you tempted to build in vain? Or are you tempted just to do nothing? To just sit? Look back at the dilemma you carried in here with you, the bomb, the one with the timer attached to it, and all the wires, and not knowing what to do next. How are you tempted to handle that? How have you been handling that, right? If I'm being totally honest, I think I have found the place of asking God and trusting in him to fix my dilemma only when I've worn myself out trying to do it without him. <laughs> I think that's where I find myself. I could be very guilty of building in vain, watching in vain. But maybe you're not like me. Maybe you're the opposite, right? I wonder why people like me don't spend all of our time praying instead. Maybe you're the person that petitions and prays and fasts, especially for God to do something like change a city or fix a marriage. But maybe you're the person that doesn't budge an inch to do a thing. You don't pick up your hand to labor. Let me just tell you, that's not better. That's not better, right? You see, we, we find in the Bible an interplay between prayer and activity, between trust and effort, and I'm glad it's in there because I can quickly find myself in one ditch of inactivity or another ditch over here of hyperactivity, right? And I think all of us in the room, we find ourselves in one of those ditches often. What is it in the heart of a man and the heart of a person? What is it in our hearts that provokes us to either build in vain or not build at all. I mean, let's just think about that for a minute. Maybe you're in ditch one with me. We're both in ditch one, right? You build in vain. You're one of those people. We leave God in the dust. Maybe because we think that what we're dealing with, our dilemma is too small to bother him with, or maybe we just have the answers, right? We don't even need to petition or submit. We can just fix it really quick. We just start cutting wires all over the place because we don't need to resource God, submit anything to him at all. Or maybe we just feel like he's too slow. We could do this real fast. Maybe we're just too prideful. Maybe we think that he's unnecessary, absent. 
We just assume that God is behind everything we do. But we never stop to pray, think, submit, petition, anything. We are the type of people in ditch one that just gets crap done. That's the reputation anyway, right? Just get stuff done. The timer is counting down, we're just cutting wires. Ditch two, on the other side of the road, not a better ditch. People who don't build at all, why? Too hard, and failure stinks. So best just not to do anything. We tell ourselves if it doesn't get done, well then, oh well, maybe that's the way God wanted it. So houses don't get built, cities don't get watched, because work is totally avoided. You see, one group is very, very hyperactive, the other one's very slothful and inactive, right? But both groups have the same crack in the foundation. We don't trust that God is who he says he is, so we put ourselves first. We don't trust that God is as good as he advertises or in control as he keeps telling us. So we place ourselves in the middle of the equation, right? I mean, consider a broken marriage for a moment. I know we don't have any in here, but let's just pretend for a moment that your marriage is got some cracks in it, right? I think some of us will have a temptation to pray and depend on God to change our spouse, to change us, and that is not bad. That's a good thing to do. After all, nothing substantially changes without the God that, that we worship changing that. I mean, he's the one really cutting wires, just as we see in our text today. But maybe you need to have a hard conversation, too. Maybe you need to work harder at building intimacy, because that has to be built. It doesn't just happen, Right? Maybe you need to get a good counselor and put it in your budget as a line item. Maybe you need to do things, build something, because if you don't, you can pray the house is still not getting built. The house is still not getting built. But on the flip side, some of us, we buy books, go to conferences, we do everything. We surround ourselves with routines like date nights and with people that are better at this thing than we are. And these are all great motions. They're all great things to have going on around you, yet you might not ever petition God. You might not ever cry out for change. You might not ever fast for your spouse or for your marriage. And I would tell you the same thing I tell myself, we could be building in vain. Building in vain. You know, I was just talking about this this morning with Ben and Chaz just a little bit. This has been something that has helped me here recently. One of the big dilemmas I have as a pastor is looking for a new home for this, this gathering, looking for a new home. I like West High School. We're fortunate to have it, too. A lot of churches are scrambling to find a place to meet. We have a good place. I just think legacy at year 10, 15, 20, I think we're a stronger church and more effective church in this city if we have a place, right? But it is the biggest dilemma I have, looking for a place to call our home, a people around it to call our people. It's a monumental task. It is the hardest bomb for me to defuse. I have to do things. I gotta hustle and chase leads, crazy leads sometimes that amount to absolutely nothing. I've had to do whatever it took to get into some rooms and speak to some people that are really hard to get into, just hustling. I've had to get coaching. I've had to read books because these aren't skill sets you just naturally have all the time. I've had to learn how to raise money. I've had to learn how to delegate certain things to certain people. 
I've had to really examine and learn and get coached on how to communicate a vision for a place and a people, how to maneuver a population, even the small size we have here, from place A to place B, and how to do it effectively. That's hard. It's a long list. But I'm also going to need to pray and fast and pray and fast and recruit others to do the same. I'm going to need to trust the Lord as some doors just shut in our face, which has happened. I've got to trust the Lord when with all of my strength and might, I try to pry some doors open and they won't open. And that has happened as well. Right. But here's my temptation to leave God in the dust and just get crap done. That's my temptation. It's not to avoid hard work. It's to throw myself into the middle of it. That's always been it, right? So I have to ask myself the hard question. Do I really believe God is who he says he is? Do I really believe that? Is he really in control? Is he really good? Right? Maybe you hear this scenario and you think, Luke, just pray. That's all you got to do. Whenever it's the right time, God's just going to drop that building in your lap, right? Don't even worry about the money either. It's just going to come. That's how it works, Luke. That's how it works in the kingdom. You don't have to do anything. You just kind of pray, and God's going to do it all in front of you, right? I'm going to ask you a hard question. Do you really believe that God is good? Are you free to fail? Are you free to do things and see doors shut in your face? Are you free to find that edge of discomfort in work and then just plow and plow and plow, right? You see, is one ditch better than the other? Not really, not really. But then again, no one in here is in just one ditch. We're kind of balanced, but we're all unbalanced at the same time, veering from one to the other, sometimes in both. I mean, the good news that we have is that even when we're off balance, God still accomplishes his will. I think that's really good news. I mean, look at Esther. Where is her balance? I mean, has she been balanced in this story? Not really. I, I mean, there's a couple chapters she's not even in there, right? She's at a day spa, being Esther. And then she has moments like this in chapter 7 where she's brilliant and commanding, right? Unbalanced. I mean, do you see her praying? You know, the, the word prayer is not even mentioned in the book. It's not even mentioned in the story of Esther. It's not in there. You'll see fasting, but everywhere else in the Old Testament, you see prayer joined to fasting, prayer and fasting, except for Esther, it just says fasting, right? They did that on purpose. The good news is that God delivers his people whether or not they're faithful and balanced. Whether or not his faithfulness, it's not built on your character, it's built on his character, that's why. It's not built on your balance, it's built on his just stability. That's why Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy, if we are faithless, he remains faithful. And we see that in the story of Esther, don't we? Right? She's got moments of inactivity, moments of hyperactivity. Moments of inactivity back to hyperactivity. And the whole time, God is faithful. God is faithful when she's a girl. God is faithful when she's pulled out of her home and thrown into a harem. God is faithful whenever Mordecai is in key places at key times. God is faithful when she turns less and less into a Jewish woman and more and more into a Persian king, God is faithful. God is faithful whenever poles are being sunk into the ground at Haman's backyard while Mordecai is sleeping soundly, doesn't even know he's about to die. God is faithful. God is faithful in the first feast. God is faithful in the second feast. That is what we see in this story. 
but it's actually amplified into a better story. We have a, if you want to see a story where God is faithful and that is the main theme, you don't have to look any further than a bloody cross and an empty tomb, which is what this story is meant to direct our gaze towards. We have a better story where we have a better king who does not invent charges against us, but he takes the charges we rightly earned and lays them upon his son. And his son was cursed, not for what we did, but for who we are, right? Let's see this in Galatians 3. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. That comes out of Deuteronomy, if you didn't know that. Being impaled on a tree was kind of a sign of a cursed death back in the ancient Near East. And because Jesus became my earned curse, as it says in the very last verse of what we read, the king's wrath is abated. The king has no more wrath. There's no more condemnation. No more fury to be poured out. Nothing but grace and favor. That's what it says in Romans 8. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's no condemnation, but there's not a vacuum either. Favor floods in. God's love to you despite your inability to cut the right wires, even though you're unbalanced, even though I'm unbalanced, even though we find ourselves in the ditch, favor replaces condemnation, even for people like us, especially for people like us. This means that you are free. Hear me, you are free to trust God, if that's what you call it, and pray and fast, and you don't move a finger. It doesn't affect God's affection of you, his love of you. Or you can build, you could even build in vain. You're free to do that too. And it doesn't affect the way God sees you, loves you, engages you. It doesn't affect that. You're free to trust and build. And even when you get the balance wrong, when you get the balance wrong, God will not fail. He will be faithful. He will be faithful. He'll accomplish his goals according to his brilliant wisdom, a wisdom that we can't speak into. He'll do it for his glory for his pleasure and for your good. He'll do this through your wins and he'll do this through your losses because he's gonna unite all things to himself as part of his brilliant plan. So again, take the dilemma, the one you carried in here, the timer, whether it's your marriage, your kiddos, your job, your health, your sanity, gosh, it could be anything. You don't even know what to do next, do you? But what you do know is what ditch you're tempted to go into, right? I mean, if you're honest with yourself, you know what that looks like. What is the ditch? What is the temptation you typically have? You know your tendency to build in vain or to not build at all. Proverbs 16.3 says this, to commit your work to the Lord and your plans will be established. This is a description of trust-filled activity. To commit your work to the Lord and your plans will be established. Luke, does that mean that every time I do this, that my plans will happen? Nope. But then again, Proverbs aren't promises. They're general truths. We'll talk about that when we go through the Proverbs. But a proverb is not a promise. It's a truth. It's a truth. It's a statement that is memorable, helpful, and generally true. To commit your work to the Lord and see your plan established. So take your plan and your dilemma, whatever it is, And ask yourself, which strategy glorifies God, even if it costs you? Door one, door two. Which one shows the glory and the brilliance of God 
even if it costs me big? Which one requires trust and dependence? You can't get it done without it. Not sure? Pray, seek, even fast to find out. And if the Lord is clear, if the Lord is clear on what to do next, then do it. Activate and get it done, even if it's hard, even if there's failure all around it. You see, trusting without activity, there's no joy in there. Activity without trust, there's no joy there either. Listen, sometimes the Lord's not clear, right? Sometimes you just don't know what to do. Here's a sample of what a prayer could sound like if that would be a case you'd be in. I wrote this down because I've prayed this a lot. Lord, I don't know what to do. I don't even know which way brings you the most glory. I don't know which way reveals your character the most. I have no idea. I don't know what's wisest. I don't know what's Jesus-shaped. I don't know what's gospel-centered. I don't know. But I trust, I do trust that you will work in me as I move forward, right? And I don't even really know what forward looks like right now. So I'm going to pray for a couple more days. I might fast, but I'm begging you to be clear with me and to give me courage whenever you've shown me clarity, right? You see, there's room for us to repent in this room. There's room for us to, to change. If we build in vain because God is not really in control, if we don't see God as faithful, if we don't believe that God is really who he says he is, there is room to repent. If we don't build at all because the work is too hard and the failure is too tough and God is not good enough, we have room to repent. Because again, we don't trust that God is who he really says he is. He's not faithful in that way. And then friends, listen, if you're here and not fascinated with Jesus, you do not belong to Jesus, I am glad you're here. I'm really glad you're here. We've prayed for you to come here. And I want you to hear the gospel story and how the cross in an empty tomb in the ground speaks to even your dilemma. Even the bomb you have, right? And I'm sure you came in here with one. I'm sure you came in here with one. Because listen, it's not easy being the center of the universe, is it? It's not easy. It's not easy building sand castles and then watching the high tide roll over it. It's not easy having no one to get help from, no one to petition. It hasn't been easy being you. That's why your dilemma's been so hard, but you actually have a bigger dilemma, a bigger dilemma. You see, in our story today, the last verse is, then the wrath of the king abated. But you live a story where you're in the middle where the wrath of the king has not been abated. There, there is satisfaction to be found in Jesus, and Jesus is taking care of this wrath for his people. Right? But then you have to ask yourself, have I given myself to the Lord? Do I belong to him? Am I fascinated with him? Is he Lord of my life? That's the, that's the key dilemma you're struggling with. So I'd say today, if you hear God's voice, don't harden your heart. And listen to the theme of Esther, which is the theme of the Bible, and that is God is faithful. God is faithful. Go ahead and stand with me. I want to pray with you, and then we're going to go into the last part of our service, which is really just your response to everything that you've heard and everything that the Lord might be doing in your heart, even if it has nothing to do with what you've just heard, right? So we'll have communion elements in the back. That gives you an opportunity to take 
broken bread and and juice, which is emblematic of the, the broken body of Christ, and able to take that in remembrance of what God has done to solve your dilemma, to take your dilemma and wash it away. It gives you an opportunity to take that in thankfulness and in remembrance, and then in thanksgiving of the fact that we'll have another banqueting table, that we will sit next to him where our place is saved and will never be taken away, right? And then we'll also have opportunity to sing, to pray, to give, to love each other, to high-five, to ask questions, to work out problems. This is your opportunity to be the church in response to what the Lord is saying to you. So let me pray for you. Father, we thank you for being very clear with us in your Bible. We're not having to just struggle and grasp and go get 16 degrees to figure out what you're saying. You're very obvious in this. And one thing that you've been so painfully obvious is how faithful you are. Even when I'm faithless, even when I am bouncing from one ditch to the next, even when I don't even know what to do, even when I make a ton of mistakes, even when I'm selfish, even when I don't want to fail, even when I don't want to wait, even when I I don't want to do the things, even when I don't believe you are who you say you are, you are faithful. That your grace means that you have favor for your church, you love your church totally despite your church totally despite our ability to not cut wires or do nothing but cut wires without even looking your direction. We all have so many dilemmas in this room, Lord. So many problems, and they're so complex. When I listen to them, I just want to fix them. I just want to fix people's problems, and I don't even know where to start with their problems. I don't even know where to start with my problems. So, Lord, we do petition you, and we ask for clarity, and we ask for courage. We ask for just any direction and guidance at all. And then, Lord, if you show us, we pray for courage to carry it out. And if not, if you're not clear and we make mistakes, Lord, remind us and give us confidence that your plan will unwrap the way you want it to unwrap. You are faithful. You're a good God to us. You've shown us through a cross. you just through the, the grave, through the gospel story, you've shown us how brilliant and wise and generous and kind you are. So, Lord, we worship you. We love you. We thank you. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.